0: Way back in 1993, I was an ambitious young filmmaker and I was about to make a documentary all about immigration. And guess what? It was going to be in verse. Furthermore, I was determined to do it on super 16 millimeter film and I wanted it to be broadcast that way. Now, those, of course, were the days of four by three aspect ratio. So that was going to mean the film would need to be transmitted in a letterbox format with strips of black above and below the picture. This film is going to be for the BBC, and incredibly, my request to shoot and transmit 16 by 9 went all the way to the top, to the director general himself. And after a couple of weeks, his answer came back. Permission was denied because... To quote him, the British public pay for their whole screen to be filled with picture. So being a director, I, of course, went for a creative solution. How about I put all the text, the name captions and some of that poetry in the black letterbox, both above and below the image? Now, that was deemed acceptable and my film was duly broadcast. And indeed, it won a British Film Institute Award for Innovation. Now, directors from that time will all have stories much like this because those were the days when tech innovation in media was firmly in the service of creative innovation. But in this DPP podcast, we ask is that still the case? Or is tech innovation now about something far more fundamental? Is it table stakes for business survival? Welcome to the latest DPP podcast. And there are two of us here. My name is Mark Harrison. I'm the CEO of
1: the DPP. And I'm Rowan de Pomeray. I'm the DPP's CTO.
0: Now, today, Rowan, you and I are going to reflect on all this work the DPP has been doing over the last few months on innovation, aren't we?
1: Yes, indeed. There's there's been quite a theme running for a, a few months, as you say, since the start of the year. And it's it's a theme that's pretty close to our hearts, isn't it, Mom?
0: Yeah, because although you and I are approximately 140 years apart in age, nonetheless uh we both had roles that one way or another were all around trying to drive innovation pretty much in the same kind of decade. About kind of 2007 to 17, I'd say.
1: Yeah, exactly right. I was a fresh-faced engineer in BBC R&D in uh, 2007 and uh, actually working on large-scale multi-touch displays at just about the time that the iPhone was launched. Um, So that was kind of a a crazy whirlwind and and, and I went through a few different roles from there. And yeah, you have a very similar time period, right?
0: Yeah, that was about the time when um, I found I'd run out of anything left to say in making films and found myself uh, getting involved in production innovation one way or another. Um, But actually, one of the things that uh, really stood out for me in all this work we've been doing recently was I hadn't quite clocked the significance of that year, 2007, which I mean, a history rule eight wasn't because of the jobs you and I went into, but um, rather because... It was the year that the iPhone was launched, and also the year when Netflix began its streaming video service and Those two momentous events came just one year after Amazon launched public cloud as a beta service. So in that kind of two year period, around about you know fourteen or fifteen years ago, um, three things happened that that now we look back on as being hugely
1: transformative. Absolutely, that is the word. And and they're all very related, those three as well, right? So, you know, you wouldn't have the streaming revolution that we have without public cloud. Um, you know, Netflix yeah. famously built build a lot on, on AWS, but in general the, the cloud providers are fundamental to most streaming solutions. Um, and and equally I would say, you know, if you look at the the iPhone and the the mobile phone, the tablet, these kind of client devices, equally they would not be what they are today without the cloud. You know, that that sort of push towards these these powerful but simple little devices in our hand, backed up by incredible processing capability in in these centralized cloud locations, really Laid the foundation for a whole new generation of, of software and services that we all take for granted now.
0: Yeah, it's uh, so true. I mean, I really remember when I first began going to CES, and you know, the I- iPad was launched, and then the following CES, there were two hundred product launches of other tablets, and yet none of them, none of them had had spotted what the iPad had done. Because the iPad actually was trying to force consumers into a world of cloud-based apps. And all these other tablets were just basically touchscreen computers.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it, it is a whole shift in, in the way that we think and the way that we use devices. I mean of course you know, everything that's uh, that's old is new again. I suppose in some ways it's not a million miles away from the early days of computing with mainframes and terminals. But uh, mm. but that thing of of placing a huge amount of technology in a central location, but with just the right amount of tech in people's hands in their pockets is is a really remarkable combination that has changed the way that so many different tools and technologies and even industries work
0: yeah but maybe just as it took us quite a while to realize the significance of you know of those launches for the professional media industry um so the iPhone in particular was perhaps a bit of a distraction because I don't know about you, but my recollection of of that ten years or so from two thousand and seven was that it felt as if the media industry was just obsessed with the notion that some device or some very particular specific technology would come along and it would completely transform the way that consumers um wanted to consume media and indeed that would transform the way that we made it.
1: You're talking about new forms of storytelling,
0: aren't you, Mark? That's oh god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you know that's my kind of hobby horse. As soon as I hear <laughs> as soon as I hear that term I kind of reach for some weapon that uh, can have a very violent impact. Um, um yeah.
1: <laughs> but, but you're right, you know, that whether it was um you know the 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 tablet, which has sort of been pretty impactful, but but then you know, three D uh, television and VR goggles for for consuming content, and
0: yeah, you know, Glass. Did seem,
1: yeah it yeah did seem to be this obsession that that we were going to have some fundamental, groundbreaking, massive change um, enabled by any device. You're absolutely right, and I think what we've actually seen is um, is these sort of General-purpose devices um, combined with great software experiences um, that enable continual improvement, continual innovation across, um, you know, everything from from uh, games to productivity tools to to media consumption.
0: Uh, yeah, but what was I think particularly kind of weird about that time was that it was as if everyone had spotted that consumers could change everything for us. Um, by what they did. And yet somehow, most people were missing the point because the way they were changing everything for us was they were consuming streaming video that was coming from the cloud and often on their iPhone or iPad. Um, but we we somehow thought it was going to be that they were going to demand that we made content differently. Mm. And, and, and it was as if that was some kind of, that was still a hangover from that period that that I described at the beginning when in the end all tech innovation really came from what it was that the creatives wanted to do with how they were making their stories.
1: Well yeah, you know we've we've commented before that that there's been a, a big shift in our industry from from the professional media organizations driving change, whether that's color TV or HD or widescreen or whatever, to, towards consumers really driving that change. But I always think that it's interesting to compare and contrast with with the music industry, right? It's If you look at the shift towards digital music distribution, there really wasn't so much kind of discussion about new forms of content. It, it was mm-hmm. all about... Yeah the distribution mechanism and i remember huge arguments over you know whether this you know crappy quality 128 kilobit mp3 music that was available on itunes was ever going to be um it was ever going to cut it with consumers compared to uh, compared to cds and what we found is that Every single time, consumers will choose convenience. They will download the content oh. they want. They will consume the content they want on the device in the location that they want. And it's amazing that it took us so long to realize that the same would be true for video, right? All people want is to watch the program they want to watch, wherever they are, when they want to watch it.
0: Yeah, gosh, you're so right. That's so well put. And and of course, that quality will always improve. You know, I, I can remember a period of my life when I was... I was head of multi-platform production at uh, the BBC. And to my shame, I actually was taken in by the argument that there was something fundamental about online video that had to be rough and ready and low quality. And I was beginning to wonder, should the BBC sort of change the way it made some of its content to be all kind of rough and a bit rubbish? Mm. And it's like, no, no, no. That just was because it was the early days of... Web video—that's why it was poor quality. And of course, it got better because things always get better.
1: They do, and and those better and better tools make it into the hands of of the people that are that are creating that rough and ready content, right? You know, right.
0: I, <laughs> they make it better.
1: Yeah, yeah, my, my, absolutely. It's it's amazing what uh, you know what progress there has been in in that area, and then the sort of filter down of of technology to consumers has has shown that, that that innovation will make its way through to to all of the users and all of the content that is being created. It is utterly astounding what you can create yeah. with a phone these days.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But in the middle
0: of all this this kind of obsession with device innovation, uh, you and I, and I think this is probably where we first met, wasn't it, at least knowingly? I think so. Did, did, were both heavily involved in one piece of innovation that wasn't about devices. It was actually about, you could say, business transformation if you want a grand term, which was the move to file-based delivery. And that's actually a kind of, it's a good news story about innovation, isn't it? I, th- I think it holds quite a few, still quite useful lessons.
1: I think it does. Um, I think what it shows us, most of all, is that innovation is successful where it solves real problems or delivers real improvements. You know, there was a real world challenge around delivery of content on tape, um, yeah. and and actually, it also shows the value in many ways of a catalyst. Um, so, you know, famously, the uh, the tsunami that hit the Sony factory that was producing all of the HD cam SR tapes that we were all using to deliver yeah. programs. Um, created a, a supply constraint that accelerated the need to make changes that, frankly, we all knew we needed to make anyway, right? Yeah. In, in just the same way as the pandemic in the last year has accelerated a bunch of change that people were were planning to make. That um, catalyst factor was hugely valuable. And and that speaks to something I think that you you've referenced in the Making Innovation Pay report about the need to to be decisive and and have clear decision making around uh, you know putting weight behind an innovation and and that's what that catalyst really gave our industry I think is is the urgency to to just get on with it.
0: It's so true, yeah, yeah. Because I, mean, I really remember that that sense of empowerment, you know, when I was one of the people charged with delivering this, particularly for the BBC at the time, and. Yeah, you could get a a meeting with the CTO at the BBC and mm-hmm. uh, ask him to you know sign off that we were going to launch this on this date and so forth and it and it all was
1: easy easy and it happened. It's really true, actually. I think it, it lowered the barriers to risk and and you know for all you joke about uh, about the hundred and forty years gap between us, I you know I was a, a you know reasonably young very kind of middle ranking engineer in the BBC and and I found myself in meetings with you know C level managers who who were listening to my opinions about whether we should shift to um you know an automated system for our quality control of content or um you know whether we should changed the way that we applied some of the regulatory constraints we had around things like photosensitive epilepsy. You know, these are big decisions that that there was just a recognition that these had to be made. And and so, you know, getting somebody with expertise in front of somebody who can make a decision to talk it through just happened in, in a way that I don't think is always the case.
0: No, no. It was a very exciting experience to be at the heart of an innovation initiative where there was this will, Um, and of course, across all UK broadcasters, because that was the amazing thing about file delivery, was every single UK broadcaster agreed to do it and agreed to do it on the same day, which just seems astounding now. And it just goes to show that actually, when you do have leadership from the top, innovation becomes relatively simple. Um, And that came out again and again in the conversations we had with others over the last few months.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and and I think, you know, if I reflect on sort of then the next couple of, of, of big projects I was involved in in other roles and in other companies, um, that leadership from the top is a consistent theme. It's also got to be from from the right areas of management. So, you know, uh, what I'm in particular thinking here is that leadership from the top of technology is not enough if uh, a a business change process has to affect production departments or oh. operations teams, right? right. You, you need that real kind of coordinated view across an organization whereby um, the management of all of the groups involved are brought in, um, not, not just a, a CTO commanding his engineers to upend the workflows for production teams, for example.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, you and I have both done a lot of work on innovation in production and to this day, and this is very ironic considering where we began this conversation, you know, about how uh production was always seen as being the, the, the driver for for tech innovation. Um but that actually historically it's also a very, very conservative area, isn't it? And um it 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 loves the notion of innovating on a specific project to achieve a particular thing but as a culture it absolutely hates standardization it absolutely mm. hates anything corporate so the the notion of an innovation program that introduces a particular form of of innovation kind of uniformly across across what production does is is resisted with every
1: fiber and is to this day completely right and and <laughs> you know in in again the make innovation pay report you talk about how um uh, a good innovation structure becomes so embedded that it's invisible. And and I think, in a way, production is the epitome of that, right? You know, in a production team, if you try and, as you say, implement some kind of structured innovation process, um, it's, it's very unlikely to succeed. But actually, the attitude of being willing to try something new for a creative benefit, you know, of, of trying out a new yeah. tool, whether it's a you know a new camera is always an easy win because you know, everybody loves shiny camera kit but but even you know some of these great new cloud tools we see for production management for graphics for media management you know if it's if it's approached in that that way of oh we'll try something new cuz it might help us out and it might help us to make our program better then that sort of culture is quite embedded, I think, in in production. But but the structured format of it and and that visible innovation structure is is what doesn't work. But I guess this
0: is also the kind of segue into, I suppose, the key finding of of all this work we've done in the last few months, which is that in many respects, uh, creative innovation could be said no longer to be the important thing in our business. Um, you, could almost, you could almost say it's not necessary. Uh, you know, people might scream if if I was to say such a thing. Um, <laughs> what I mean by that is that, um, obviously, particular filmmakers will, will go on finding brilliantly creative solutions to how to tell or deliver their particular story. Um, but I think we could safely predict that the, the, the way that content is made and stories are structured will not fundamentally change over the next decade. Um, however, I think we might look back in 10 years time and say, oh my word, there were innovations in what what happened to content after it had finished being crafted and had been delivered, uh, ready for, for an sure, audience yeah. that that were
1: seismic, for sure. I mean, I you know I absolutely see upcoming innovation in the way that content is is delivered and and recommended and consumed and and all of those kinds of things. I've no doubt there will continue to be evolution. In in the the ways that we create that content, you know, to to throw in all the cliches, you know, evolution versus revolution. I, you know, I don't <laughs> think there's going to be a revolution in in the simple process. It's not a simple process, but in 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 the basic yeah. components of the core process a yeah. program, of telling a story. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I sincerely hope there will continue to be gradual improvement and, and innovation in in different areas. And certainly, if if I look around the DPP membership, then I, I see that happening. So I'm, I'm sure it won't stop. But yeah, it's it is that that understanding that innovation doesn't have to mean a massive change overnight in in, in the way that you know file delivery was or that. You know, relatively speaking, the iPhone was um, that that actually a new software release every year is is an important thing. A new tool that a team picks up once and finds is great, and then uses on their next show. The, these are these are the kinds of of uh, gradual improvements that I think we'll see in content creation.
0: Right, um, but those gradual improvements are, I think, already much more evident in the later parts of the. Supply chain and in the way that um, we prepare and deliver content to consumers. Because you know, one of the weird things about our business, which I don't think people articulate very often, is that is that we make content, as we call it, and deliver it, and then we kind of make it all over again because all the things that get done to that particular asset, that particular item, before it gets to consumers. uh, you know it's it's a huge it's a huge number of processes and it can be quite transformative. It will still be the same story. it will kind of look and sound fundamentally the same, but it will have been through numerous processes won't it and it and it could have been turned into different versions served out in different languages you know had various changes made internally to it, but also at least as importantly, it will have been prepared to be consumed on different platforms and in different ways and, it's like exactly. the factory that comes after the factory.
1: Exactly right, and and I I definitely am keeping my eyes on that as a as a key area of of ongoing innovation. I think if we look at you know again, if if you draw parallels to to other content industries, you look at what happened in web design over the last. Fifteen years, we went from very static pages to much more interactive, but but in particular to responsive design, right? You know, it is it is mm. absolutely assumed if you design web content these days that it will format itself different on a desktop display versus a mobile display, and we still don't do that really with video content, mm. um, and and it, that kind of thing only applies to particular types of content. Um, you know, it, mm. it's uh, I'm, I'm not necessarily. Um, Keen on on sort of reframing and recutting drama productions and that kind of thing, but certainly in news, in sport, in these data laden kind of right. I think I think there's a huge amount that could happen there, as well as as you say, you know, localization and and the accessibility services, even all of these things uh, are becoming more and more important, and therefore more and more worth investing in innovation.
0: Yeah, yeah, and of course the actual experience of of searching for or discovering right. content that you're going to like. I mean, I remember in the course of this work, uh, Paul Cheeseborough the, the CTO at Fox, saying he feels that we're in version 1.0 of that. Hmm. Um, and I think he's right, isn't he? It, it hasn't really changed very much ever since we first had smart TVs.
1: I think that's true. I th- you know, again, it's it's got a little bit better. Um, I, th- I think... Aggregation and and disaggregation are, are perpetual challenges. You know the the fragmentation of content into app worlds is 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 you know a consumer friction point right now. Um, and there are plenty of options out there that will aggregate content from from different apps, but nobody seems to have sort of really universally cracked it. I, th- I definitely think that that that's something we're going to see continual attempts at at, at the very least.
0: Yeah, and that could be the thing. In ten years' time, we, we we look back on and go, ah, okay, that that was the breakthrough. In the yeah, way do that you remember the days when
1: you had to open the Netflix app to watch a Netflix show, right. and the BBC app to open to watch a BBC show, and the Disney app to watch a Disney show? God, was yeah. such a mess? Oh,
0: <laughs> my, how we laugh! Yeah, <laughs> all, those, all those tiles along the bottom of your of your screen. And when you get a new, when you, do you remember when you used to get a new. TV, and you'd have to go through each of them, logging back in again and making sure all your payment details are up today. Oh, yeah, what a screen! We used to do it that way, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you imagine. Know, but you referred earlier on to, to getting to kind of incremental change. And again, one of the things that I think really landed for me in the course of doing this work was that uh, you know, somewhere around a few years ago, we really embraced the notion of product development in our industry, um, both in the the business-to-business and in the business-to-consumer realms. Yep. And th- at that moment, that was kind of when this this slight confusion about between innovation and invention got broken, wasn't it, don't you think? That was when... We began to understand that innovation can actually be be a, an incremental thing.
1: Yeah, I think that's right, um, and and I think that sort of product management methodology, you know, it gets gets pretty tightly aligned to to sort of software driven um, tools. It's it's much easier to apply, um, but ultimately, product management and, and and product design methodologies are about bridging the gap between the users. And the technology, and yeah. you know, that's something that I think is becoming increasingly important. You know, great user experience, whether it's in B two C or B two B applications, yeah. is is a a crucial um, a differentiator. And and you know, we've done a lot of work around this recently. Had a lot of conversations around this about you know, where is the right line between automated self service and personal connections? Where is the the right line between you know continual improvement and 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 um, customization versus uh, you know sort of stability and, and ease of use and right right trade-offs are really really tough balances but there's there's a, a tranche of people whose job it is to worry about this now and I, I'm not sure that, that we could have always said that
0: yeah and those people probably won't have innovation in their job title will they
1: no I think you're right I think they mostly will be product people
0: yeah yeah um, but so does that mean you think that it will inevitably be tech companies that will prevail because they just have innovation so in their blood they don't even use the i word
1: perhaps I I might say that I'd start to question what is a tech company actually um, mm-hmm. you know in do, do we call Ford an engineering company? No, we call them a car company. You know, is a, a, a producer of software tools a tech company? Are they, or, or do we define them? Yeah, by but that? I it's, guess the difference between you know F-
0: F- Ford doesn't actually fund its car-making operations by selling advertising. You know what I mean? It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's the fact that we've got these, these companies that have specialisms elsewhere that also do media.
1: Yeah, well, that yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, and I don't know. I, th- I think that they are at a head start, but only because they've got that core cool competence in, in technology and in customer understanding. And, and I don't think that there's anything that stops media companies from developing many of the same skills and competencies. Um, but they have to understand that that is an important part of their business. You know, we're, we're back once again to the old Our Media Companies, Tech Companies conversation and, and yeah. you know, I'm firmly of the opinion that, that it's not about being a tech company per se, but it's about having real tech competencies within your organisation.
0: Right, right. Um, but I guess the challenge, and I speak as somebody who's spent most of my career in and around broadcasters, you know, established historic broadcasters is 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 whether they will ever most of them get to that place where customer experience is is paramount, right? Because it was all you know, it was always the opposite. We 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 as directors um, make content either for ourselves, frankly. Or if we were doing it for the consumer more overtly, we did it out of a sense of service. And I mean, we, we were we were giving stuff to them. Um, we were not kind of wired to think about about what was going to work for them. Now, of course, that was in the nature of the content itself. But when, even when you got down to how they consumed it, mm-hmm. of course, broadcasters were all founded on the notion of one-to-many. Yep rather than one to one and even though almost all of them know now they're going into a more of a direct to consumer future culturally will they ever get them, their heads in that space
1: well it's a fascinating question and i suspect there's not a single answer i suspect that the answer for an individual organisation might uh, might affect whether they sink or swim but but it strikes me that there's actually an advantage given what you've said, to, to a trend, certainly that we see in, in Europe. Um, and I think it mirrors a more historic structure in the US of dividing up the, the production business, the studios business from from the distribution business, because right. actually it is... Great point. The, the purpose of a, a distribution business is to serve customers. And yeah. uh, one of the you know, one of their materials that they purchase is is the content that they're going to serve up to those viewers, um, and and so arguably, perhaps there's a there's an advantage there in in separating those two businesses out, so that uh, the distribution arm can worry about serving the customers, and the uh, production arm, the studio can worry about producing the most, you know, the, the highest quality creative content.
0: That's a great point, and actually, you know, maybe that. Accepts that reality I described earlier on of there being sort of two factories: the first one that just that makes the content, and then the second one that makes it ready for the consumer. And you just acknowledge that fact and you separate those factories.
1: Definitely, you know, the integrated producer broadcaster used to be an absolute sort of central tenant of the way that that our industry worked. But yeah, understanding that those are two very different businesses and. And perhaps the synergies you get from having them under one roof are not not enough to offset the the differences between them. Maybe that's a maybe that's a a key decision point in uh, in our industry.
0: Now, look, uh, we must come to a close pretty soon, uh, but I want to finish by asking you a really mean thing because I haven't prepared you for this. But I want to know, Rowan, in all those roles that you had in and around innovation. What was your most miserable experience,
1: oh mark uh, <laughs> there's there's i don't know simultaneously, I suppose there's a few but but I'm lucky that there's there's probably not been anything that's been totally horrific um, I think that probably the one that stands out first is traveling quite a long plane journey to go see a client uh, when I was working for a vendor um getting off the plane, having a bad night's sleep, rocking up into a media organization who had brought me and our product suite in to try and help them streamline their production process and simplify everything. And I'd give them much better uh, visibility of their production process to to senior management because they they felt like they didn't know what was going on. And I spent the first sort of day or two just going around this business, asking people questions about how they worked today, and uh, and realizing they had almost no idea themselves. Um, and I think <laughs> you know the idea that you can bring in any piece of technology to fix processes when yeah. the people don't know the processes, when when there's just yeah. complete chaos. It's something that, you know, I've seen time and time again in, in different situations, but, uh, but yeah, I've, I've definitely been sort of placed in situations where there's been an expectation that technology I can deliver is going to overcome organizational mess that I have no control over.
0: Right, right, right. Gosh, that must be familiar to a lot of people. And uh, I remember Tom Griffiths at ITV once um, referring to uh, the sausage machine of innovation which is where uh you know a particular team would accept that if they did something if they were to do something different in their particular area that would fix things that would be fine but it just pushes the problem down the sausage into the next bit because they've got no concept of the overall mission and you could actually innovate in 10 different areas and end up with something that was no better than when you began
1: absolutely right yeah how about you then? Have you, have you got one spring to, to mind? Well,
0: I, I mean, probably if you, took all, if you talk about misery, then actually probably a time in my life when I, I found myself with, with strategy attached to my job title, but then realized that there were several other people in the organization that had strategy in their job titles too. Um, but there was nobody who owned the strategy. So we just ended up <laughs> kind of competing with each other um, but for a specific moment, I, I think, actually, ironically, it would go back to uh, something to do with the way that films get made. When I, I I had done a pretty successful job at taking my production department when I ran one at one time um, to, uh, to, to digital um, shooting and in HD, right? So I was then sent off around the organization to speak to other departments because I was gonna help them to do this. So I went to the drama department and I was trying to convince the drama department that they should now be shooting digitally rather than on film, um, and they should be shooting digitally in, in HD. Uh, and the, the head of drama just looked at me from across the table and he said, Mark, don't you understand? that when our directors and our DOPs shoot their films, they are making them for their personal showreel on DVD. So all that matters is the image that gets transferred from the telecity machine onto a DVD, which they will arrange to happen in the course of post-production. That is all that matters.
1: <laughs> Wonderful, excellent. Good to see joined up innovation across the business. There.
0: And and a huge regard for consumer experience because, as you might recall, at that time, as as TVs were getting bigger and uh, and some design for digital content, when you put a film shot on film out, often you get these horrible, horrible artifacts that oh, would oh, happen yes. through transmission. So, even though I. Adored film as my first story showed, and um, that's what 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 made me give it up. Anyway, we must stop this self indulgence, but it's been great fun talking it's, about it. it. It's
1: always a good fun rambling on with you, Mark. I <laughs> I hope uh, some of our listeners have made it to the end.
0: <laughs> so that's it. We'll be back in a few weeks' time for the next episode of the DPP podcast. Bye for now.
1: Bye bye.